And I'll encourage you, if you're able again, uh, to rise as we read God's Word. We're going to be reading from Psalm 145 this morning. Um, it's our last sermon in the Psalms for the summer. And so hear the reading of God's Word from this wonderful, wonderful Psalm. Hear these words. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour out forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh Bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we are thankful for your word. You have told us that the grasses will grow and they'll fade away and die. But your word, the word that we just read, you tell us will stand firm forever. So we pray that you would hold true to that promise. Hold your word firm in our hearts and our lives Guide me this morning, guide my words and carry them to those gathered here, that they would be molded and shaped to be more like Jesus. We pray this in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest painter? Who is the greatest author, actor, athlete? These are conversations that take place in the diviest of dive bars and as well as in the swankiest of university halls. Who is the greatest? The greatest of anything. We want to know who the greatest is. Or as we say, or as my kids say, who is the goat, right? The greatest of all time. Who is that in any particular subject? Perhaps I could even take it one step further and dip into our souls and ask the question, do you want to be the greatest? This is the question that tempted Adam and Eve, isn't it? If you remember, the juiciest part of the temptation wasn't the apple. There were plenty of apples that they could have eaten. The juicy part of the temptation not was that you could have this sweet, delicious apple or fruit. The sweet and juicy part of the temptation is, do you remember? You could be like God. That's the juicy part. And they took a bite. Because they wanted to be the greatest. 
They wanted to be the greatest of all time. You would be like God. The hook was set. Our pride so desperately wants us to be the greatest, doesn't it? Listen to how this plays itself out in an extreme example. I think you'll quickly understand where I'm going. But this was an interview in, in September 17th, 1974 at the Waldorf, Waldorf Astoria. Let's try that again. Waldorf Astoria in New York in 1974. It is befitting that I leave the game just like I came in, betting a big bad monster who knocks out everybody and no one can whoop him. That's when little Cassius Clay from Louisville, Kentucky, came up to stop Sonny Liston, the man who annihilated Floyd Patterson twice. He was going to kill him, but he, is harder than, he hits harder than George. His reach is longer than George. He's a better boxer than George, and I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sonny Liston. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaw's been broke, been knocked down a couple times. I'm bad, been drop, chopping trees. I've done something new for this fight. I've done wrestled with an alligator. That's right, I've done wrestled with an alligator. I've done, done tussled with a whale. I've done handcuffed lightning, broke, uh, thrown thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I made medicine sick. And then Don King, his promoter, says, that's a bad dude. Bad, fast, fast, fast. Last night, I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, and was in bed before the room was dark. <laughs> Don King, incredible. And you, George Foreman, all you chumps are going to bow when I whoop them. All y'all, I know you've got them, I know you got him picked, but that man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. I am the greatest. We all know Muhammad Ali, right? Just a wonderful little picture of an extreme example of our pride and what that does in our desire. Because let's be honest, we want to be like Ali. We want to be the greatest. We want that bravado. We want to know that people think something of us. And I know it's an extreme illustration, extreme example, but it points out the nature of our true desire, doesn't it? To be great. In Psalm 145, we're given an opportunity to recalibrate our understanding. To recalibrate our understanding, not just of life, but our understanding of, of greatness and who actually is the greatest. We have an opportunity to shift our paradigm, if you will. What do I mean by that? Let me give you another example of what it looks like to shift our paradigm. There was a man, and I don't know if this is a true story, but it sounds pretty true or sounds like a pretty good example. There was a man who was convinced absolutely convinced his wife was going deaf. So he did an experiment. And he waited for the perfect time to, 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 to perform this experiment. One morning, she was in the kitchen table. Her back was towards him. And he stood outside the kitchen and he says to her, did you sleep well last night, sweetheart? No response. He's thinking, okay, she's obviously going deaf. So he steps to a few steps closer and says again, did you sleep well last night, sweetheart? Silence. Nothing. He's more confident now than ever. So he steps up right next to her ear and he says, did you sleep well last night, sweetheart? And she looks up at him and says, yes, thank you for, answer thank you for asking, but I answered you the first two times you told me. Our paradigm is shifted often, isn't it? We think and sometimes that we have 
we have everything figured out and we know exactly what's supposed to happen. We know our wives or our husbands are going deaf. There's no doubt about it. But then reality sets in and our paradigm is shifted. Our worldview is shifted and facts becomes facts. It turned out his, he was the one going deaf, not her. How often is this the case in our lives, Right? How often is this the case when we're convinced that we're correct and our paradigm and our worldview is spot on and the reality of the situation hits a smack in the face? That the truth is actually something different. That the man who is losing his hearing, not his beloved wife. This is what the Psalms do for us. This is what the entirety of Scripture should do for us to recalibrate our paradigms, reshift our worldview to help us understand more clearly exactly what is going on here. It points to the reality that the Lord is great. And he has done great things. How often do we talk about the greatness of God? I've said this many times in, in the course of our workings with one another. We, we talk in Christian terms that sometimes we just assume we know the answer to, and we assume that we think that, okay, I've heard that so many times, that's just what it is, but we never slow down long enough to actually look at it. And greatness is another one of those topics, another one of those attributes and characteristics of God, of God is great, but, but why? How? What does he do? What has he done to make him great? How is he great? And now, once again, we have an opportunity to have our paradigm shifted, our worldview recalibrated to the truth of greatness. Our response to Psalm 145, then, is to join the saints of old, the saints of today and the saints of tomorrow, to join in song, to join in the praise of the greatness of the Lord our God. This is what Psalm 45, 145 shows us here this morning, that the Lord, He's the greatest. He's the greatest. So let us look at why. And we're just going to go through these verses here relatively quickly this morning, but it's such a, a wonderful psalm, and there's no way, there's no possible way that we're actually going to be able to mine everything out of this tremendous psalm this morning. So I'm going to highlight a few things, and I'm going to ask you to put your finger in places and hold your finger in other places this morning, or somehow get on your phone and have a couple different places opened up. But let's just dive right into Psalm 145 this morning. This is the last psalm of David in the Psalter and the pinnacle of his psalms of praise. This summer, I've tried to pick out psalms of praise from, from all the way from the beginning of the summer till now. I've tried to preach through these great psalms of David and his praise. This is the pinnacle. This is the one that we all look to and, and know as this is what it means to praise the Lord. And so David, in these psalms that we've studied through this summer, often uses words like fortress and rock and, and shield as the descriptors of why we praise him. But here in the opening verses of Psalm 145, David expands his vocabulary. He expands his praise to a much broader and, yes, universal approach. I mean that in, the, in a literal sense as well. An eternal approach for all of humanity and creation. It's no longer that the Lord is just David's rock, David's shield, but the Lord is all of creation's rock and shield, all of the universe's rock and shield and fortress. And so his praise is not limited to a specific time of protection or rescue, but rather his praise or his paradigm or his worldview of the greatness of God is shifted not to a temporal thing for David's time, but to an eternal perspective. David's looking outside of his own existence. He's looking to the past 
He's also looking to the future in this psalm. And he's realizing that the greatness of the Lord is not just that the Lord is present for David, but has been faithful to those who have gone before him, maybe faithful to those who come after him. And there are a great number of things that we could choose to examine in the first three verses of Psalm 145 that make up this opening doxology of praise, but there's one thing in particular that sets the stage for the remainder of the psalm. And so that's, that thing that I want to point out is worthy of slowing down just for a moment to consider what that is. For two verses, verses 1 and 2, David extols the Lord and says he will bless his name forever. We have choruses that sing these words in these couple songs, or these three verses. Right in verse 3, is great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We have these songs, great is the Lord and worthy of glory. We know that song. This is where this comes from. We love to sing these kind of praises. The Lord will be praised forever. But there's something tucked in at the end of verse 3 that I want us to see here this morning that set the stage again for the remainder of this song. Why do we praise His greatness forever? Because that's how long it's going to take. Why do we praise His greatness forever? Because His greatness is, do you see that? Is unsearchable. We can't wrap our minds around that. I can't wrap my, my mind around that. To know that we will never, never, never come to the end of the Lord's greatness. And so when David says, we praise the name forever and ever in verse 2, every day I will bless you and you praise your name forever and ever. And then he follows it up with his greatness that I praise is unsearchable. That's how he can say he's going to praise his name forever because that's how long it's going to take. Ali was the greatest of a generation, wasn't he? But in those diviest of dive bars and sports bars, there's an argument to made that there's another fighter that came after him. Some would say Mike Tyson's the greatest boxer of all time. We could argue about that. But that's just for a generation. What David is saying is that in life, there are generations of greatness. Things come, things go. Someone's great here, another's great there. But the Lord is great for all of time. That then proves our paradigm, right? It proves our paradigm of this eternal understanding of greatness, of understanding that it is unsearchable, the lengths of his greatness. David's praise now intermeshes not only with his experience, the greatness that David has witnessed, the greatness that David has seen firsthand of his rescue, of his love, of his mercy, of his forgiveness. David now says he experiences the greatness of the Lord in the past and for all of humanity and with all of creation for all of time. And then the psalm moves forward. I want to ask a couple questions for you this morning. and I, You know I like to ask you questions because they help us to engage. And the questions I'm going to ask you are really kind of silly. And they're really obvious, but they are going to help us understand where we're going here for just a second. So the first question I have, and you can choose to answer if you want, it's kind of a silly question, but are you here in this sanctuary this morning? Yeah. See, this, this, is, how, this is how we're going, right? It's that silly, that kind of... Did we hear Psalm 145 read this morning? Yeah. Am I standing up here talking about the greatness of the Lord this morning? Yeah. Pretty simple, easy questions. Now, have you ever wondered about the faithfulness of the Lord? 
is what God says actually true? Is what he promises actually going to take place in my life? Have you ever wondered that? I have. How do I trust God? How do I know that he is going to do what he says in the Bible for me, for my family, for those whom I love, for this world, for eternity? What, how do I know these things? David, and then in verses 4 to 7, says something incredible. Not only incredible about the might of the Lord's deeds, but about who will proclaim the greatness of the Lord. It's abundantly clear that David is proclaiming the greatness of the Lord, but he says that all mankind will proclaim the greatness of the Lord. He says that, the, that, what is it, that generation after generation will proclaim his greatness. We are many generations from David. As we say here in Texas, it's been a minute since David walked the earth. Have you ever wondered if the Lord is faithful to his promises? Or that his word is true? Here David says that generation after generation will proclaim the greatness of the Lord's deeds. Friends, this morning, we are a fulfillment of that faithfulness. Because we're here and we're talking about the greatness of the Lord. It is the fulfillment of Scripture taking place at this very moment that the Lord will do what He says. Because as we sit here, stand here, are here, He's doing just that. So in our lives, when we think, how do I trust the Lord? How do I know that what he says is true? How do I know that he's actually going to do what he says? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that my family is loved? How do I, how do I know? How do I know? Remember today. Remember Psalm 145, where David says the generations will proclaim his greatness. We are proclaiming his greatness. The Lord is fulfilling his promise to you today. So if he fulfills a small little promise like that, he will fulfill all of his promises to you and the generations that follow. And David gets that. David now understands this very amazing thing. The Lord's greatness is that he fulfills his promises for all of mankind. He fulfills his word. He fulfills his faith and his love. And this greatness of the Lord is for all of humanity, all of creation, for all of eternity, because this greatness is unsearchable for all eternity. So the Lord is a faithful promise keeper. That's part of his greatness. But as we move forward in this psalm, in the next few verses, we see that the Lord is also compassionate. His greatness is also wrapped up in compassion and love and mercy. The God whose great, greatness covers the span of generations and eternity is also a God who understands and enters into the presence of our lives here and now today. So not only is he, is he eternal, is he unsearchable, is he vast, is he faithful to generations, but he also understands you here now today. This is what David is saying to us this morning. He's not too far off. He's not too eternal. He's not too big. He's not too powerful. He's not unknowable, but starkly the opposite. He is near, and he understands. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me, if you will. We know these words very well. The Lord is gracious and merciful. 
He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. We know these words. Some of you may even have like PowerPoints or posters of these words in your kitchen or your office or something like that. But where have we heard these words before? Not only in Psalm 145, but it seems to me there may be at least one other place where we've heard the Lord is gracious and kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Put your finger in Psalm 145. Turn to the left quite a bit, almost back to the beginning, to Exodus, to the book of Exodus, Exodus 34. And while you're turning there, I just want to describe to you what's going on in Exodus 34. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, that same mountain that shook and quaked with the presence and the greatness of the Lord when he was present with them. Moses is on top of this mountain for the second time. See, the first time Moses went up on that mountain, the Lord gave him the law, the Ten Commandments. And Moses came down and saw that the people were worshiping golden calves and Moses destroyed the the tablets and was mad and upset. So now Moses has gone back up to the mountain and he's gone back up to the Lord to receive these tablets again. So the Lord is giving Moses these tablets, the Ten Commandments all over again. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 34, uh, starting in verse 5, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Almost identical words. They repeat themselves here. David repeats these words. As the Lord provides the law to Moses to give to the people, in the same breath that he's writing the law to Moses, in the same breath that the law puts us into condemnation because we know we can't keep it, and the Lord understands this, in the same breath as he gives the law to Moses, He says to him that he's slow to anger. So now, here's the law. Here are ten things. Do this. Lord knows you can't do it, so he says this is the Lord, slow to anger. Here's the law. And the Lord says, I abound in steadfast love. Here's the law. He is faithful and he loves the thousands and he's quick to forgive. The greatness of the Lord is that he understands that we're broken and that we cannot. We cannot do it. We cannot fill the law's demands. He understands that we are not capable of keeping the law, even as he's giving the law. He says that he's faithful, gracious, merciful, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. The Lord's greatness is categorized in his love and his mercy and his grace towards us today. So life provides us with any number of stresses and struggles, heartbreaks. We experience disappointments, unmet expectations. People we thought were great, not so great. People we thought we could trust, we cannot. The shame of our existence haunts our repose, and we are restless. 
the guilt of our past gnaws at our soul. And that was just last night. We stare at the tablets like Moses and ponder anew. How can I? How can I? How can I possibly do that? And the Lord in His great compassion tells us that He is merciful, that He is gracious, that He is slow to anger, that He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. His greatness is in His compassion that He knows your story here today. His greatness knows your hurts and your pains. His greatness not only sees and hears your cry, but knows why you cry. His greatness knows not only your doubt and your fear, but why you doubt and why you fear. And yet, His compassion abounds in steadfast love for you. Because He knows you cannot. Because He knows you and still forgives you. And so we resonate with David. I'll never be able to search all of that kindness. I'll never be able to fully understand that kind of love for someone like me. And so he is greatly to be praised. And then there's a big shift in the psalm. We go from this intense moment of heartbreak and heartache and steadfast love and abounding in grace and mercy, and then it moves into this, this movement of kingdom and kings and, and all of these things. The compassionate God is not only knows your story, but he's also king forever. This is what we see in verses 10 to 13. And so I want to draw our attention to verse 13 this morning, where it says this, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout the generations. Once again, that seems really familiar to us, doesn't it? Or perhaps it seems familiar to us. Once again, we see and understand that the greatness of the Lord is is not temporal, but rather eternal and and far-reaching, even when it seems as if everything is crashing down all around us. Many of us, as we stare around our world and we open up our computer and we we read articles, we're disheartened. Disheartened by politics and policies, by politicians, by the state of the affairs of things. Many of us are jaded and upset and wonder if everything is close to crashing into something that's out of control, something that we don't recognize or don't at least want to be a part of. So now keep your fingers once again in Psalm 145, and I'm asking you to turn back into Daniel chapter 4. So put a finger in Psalm 145 and turn again to the left, or I'm sorry, to the right, and to the right, and go to Daniel chapter four. And while you're turning there, I want to clue you into what's happening three, or what's happening in Daniel four. Here's here's your free uh, in investigative research um, fruit here this morning. Daniel four comes after Daniel three. There you go. That's a week's worth of research right there for you. 
But it is important, that little tidbit is important because if you know Daniel 3, Daniel 3 was a section of Scripture where there was some cats by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were thrown into some little fiery furnace by some guy named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. They were thrown into this fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue of himself. This goes back to Muhammad Ali and pride and greatness and all of that, right? So here these guys, these four guys, did not bow down to this idol, so they were thrown into the fire to be burned. But they weren't burned. For an angel of the Lord was present in the fire, even after Nebuchadnezzar said to stoke the fire more and more and more to make sure that they would burn, but they didn't burn. And they walked out of the fire unscathed. They were rescued by something outside of themselves. And then the king of Babylon proclaims these words that we find in verse 3 of chapter 4. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now turn back to Psalm 145 verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord is king over all kingdoms, over all generations, over all time. The Lord is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingdom will have no end. His is an everlasting kingdom. Friends, the greatness of the Lord is that he has not and will not let this world spin out of control. For his kingdom is intact here and now and will remain intact for all of eternity. His kingdom will have no end. Because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. It's not defined by fiery furnaces, the Lord's kingdom. It's not defined by policies or politicians. It's not defined by any of these things. It's defined by what we already read, that he's a steadfast, loving, faithful, gracious God. This is the kingdom of the Lord. The one that loves the generations for all time. And then the psalmist concludes this glorious anthem of praise with the most wonderful of images that he is defined as the ultimate provider. The final six verses are words that pierce the marrow of our souls. I touched briefly this morning on the struggles of life, but here in these final stanzas, the Lord wants us to see how deeply and passionately he cares for you and me and us here and now this morning. Verse 14 says, the Lord will uphold all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. I remember the first time I climbed a 14,000 foot peak in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. There are a number of peaks, that's, I'm making that sound like it's really a, quite an accomplishment, kind of, but the, the way they're arranged is you hike up one and you can easily hike over to one or two more within the same day. So I've climbed three, but it's really one. And it wasn't any kind of technical thing, it was switchbacks back and forth like forever. It took forever. So it's an accomplishment, but nothing like climbing. It's not like climbing Everest or something like that. It's, it's a pretty well-worn path. But anyway, I was in about eighth grade, and I was on a school trip, and I'm thinking, well, I'm a young guy, fairly in shape, and I'm just going to walk up these switchbacks, no problem. We'll be up to the top, and we'll take a break, and we'll go to the next one. Yeah, not so much. 
I remember walking on the switchbacks and about three quarters of the way up just absolutely being gassed, having to sit down for lengths of time because I just couldn't put one foot in front of the other. Now, our teacher was a kind man, and he was a, an extreme athlete, cross-country runner, marathon runner. Of course, he ran, up to the, he was amazing. But he came back, and he literally had to help me put one foot in front of the other when I had fallen down. When I couldn't go one more step, he did. This is the image that David is seeing here. Now, maybe we're not climbing 14,000-foot peaks in the Rocky Mountains, but I know, I know, that in life, sometimes it's really hard to put one foot in front of the other. That we've fallen and we'll fall again. And here's the heart of the Lord coming through. That when we're fallen, and actually the, the, the tense of that verb is when we are falling, <laughs> And when we've bowed down, so it's not only after we've crashed, but as we're falling, the Lord hears our cries. And he comes to our aid, and he comes to our rescue. And he's near to those who call on his name. The greatness of the Lord is that we have a person that knows us. We have a relationship with an everlasting king who upholds us as while we fall. He hears our cries of hurts and pains. He hears our cries of frustrations and sorrows, and he provides us with himself. He doesn't give us a formula to do. He doesn't give 15 things of how to be a better husband, wife, father, mother, husband, all these things. He gives us himself. This is how he aids us. This is the greatness of the Lord. The ultimate provider not only hears our cries, but along with us, cries with us. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he cried to the extent that he sweated blood. He cried our tears as he took the nails on the cross. He cried our tears when he suffered under the weight of our sin. He cried our tears when we broke the tablets. Again, and again on the sidewalks of our lives. The psalmist says that he hears. He hears these cries. And he has cried out our tears. And verse 20 tells us, because of that, he saves us. The Lord preserves all who love him. The wicked he will not destroy. Excuse me, verse 19, he says that. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry, and he saves them. Verse 19. This then leads us to the very last thing. The greatness of the Lord is all of these things that we talked about. It's all of these things. The greatness of the Lord is not only does he provide himself, but he provides our Savior, Jesus Christ. The death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is the very definition of greatness. It's the fulfillment of the words spoken to Moses on the mountain. 
He's the perfect one. He can. It's the fulfillment of the words that he gave to Adam and even back in Genesis when he promised that he would send someone to crush the head of the enemy. He did that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the Lord is that Jesus was not left in the grave, but rather because of his greatness, he rose from the dead and defeated sin and death and hell. He crushed the enemy's head. This is how the Lord preserves and saves you and me. This is how the Lord preserves and saves you and me. Not sometime in the future, not next week or when we die, but today, this morning. You are his, and you are his forever. And so we, along with David and the generations of the Lord's people say, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And so my prayer is that this morning, our paradigm has been shifted. Our paradigm is shifted to a paradigm of praise, to praise the Lord with the saints before, the saints today, and the saints forevermore. May our mouths Speak the praise of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you would go before us, that you would strengthen us and embolden us, that you would indeed be near to us. And that when we, we, when we call, you will hear. We thank you that you care for us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen.